The biggest secret in venture capital is that the best investment in a successful fund equals or outperforms the entire rest of the fund. Venture capital is not even a home run business. It's a grand slam business. So that is from the unbelievable book, The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby. It is on the entire history and evolution of the venture capital industry. I think people who are interested in the VC industry or even just technology's progress over the last 50 years, 60 years would thoroughly enjoy this book because it goes into deep detail of many of these innovative VC firms, the funding and capital side behind Silicon Valley. And it talks about many of the companies that we look up to today, like the foundings of Google and Facebook, eBay and Yahoo before them. So it is really a unbelievable book. I recommend it to anyone. I would say it's one of the top books I've read this year. And for people looking for that history evolution of technology or the VC industry, it is a must read. To start off, we should discuss the differences between a normal distribution from this power law distribution. So a normal distribution is probably what you think about from math classes growing up. It's where you have that bell curve or Gaussian distribution. And in the middle is the average. It's right in the middle, splitting the bell. That's where within one standard deviation, you usually have 68% of the participants. And then within two standard deviations, you have 95%. So that is the traditional bell curve. And many things in life follow this bell curve distribution, like when we think of height, for example, height classically follows a bell curve distribution. There's many people around an average, and then there's some that go further out, one or two or even three standard deviations out, but it is very, very rare to find people more than three standard deviations from the median, from the average. So that's a normal distribution. When we think about a power law distribution, it is, as Malaby put it, this sort of skewed distribution is sometimes referred to as the 80-20 rule. The idea that 80% of the wealth is held by 20% of the people, that 80% of the people live in 20% of the cities, or that 20% of all scientific papers earn 80% of the citations. In reality, there is nothing magical about the numbers 80 or 20. It could be that just 10% of the people hold 80% of the wealth, or perhaps 90% of it. But whatever the precise numbers, all these distributions are examples of the power law, so-called because the winners advance at an accelerating exponential rate. So these power laws are where you have a small minority controlling a lot of the outcome, let's say it's wealth in this example, and then there's the long tail, which is the masses that have a much lower, in this case, wealth. And two properties of power laws, the first one is that averages are very misleading. If you walk into a room and someone tells you the average net worth of people in this room is a billion dollars, 
you may think you're surrounded by these really smart people. This is something that we spoke about on the Charlie Munger episode with influence from mere association. It's that these averages are very misleading and you're in this room, you think people are worth a billion dollars because the average is a billion dollars and really Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk is in that room. And if they walk out of the room, the average may jump all the way down to $200,000, something much lower than the billion dollars because that one outlier is skewing the average so much. Another big property of power laws and something we're gonna see reflected often throughout this book is how power laws exhibit these increasing returns to scale. It's where the rich get richer or success leads to more success, strength leads to strength. If you control so many of the resources, you're at this natural advantage oftentimes that you're able to then ensure better deals for your next resource. It's how businesses benefit from some of these economies of scale where you may control so much of a certain supply chain that the next good, you get it at the best price, a much better price than anyone else. So these are power laws and it's the reason he named the book really. It's a trend that we see often in the venture capital and technology industries because many of these companies exhibit these winner take all dynamics and it's where when you make an investment, you expect it to be this one winner making up for many failures. You have that one outlier that in your fund will return 100x or 50x while all your other investments may fail or barely return their initial capital. So let's jump right in to the history of the venture capital industry with Arthur Rock, William Shockley, and the early innings of the semiconductor business. But the most compelling origin story one that aims the spotlight squarely at the force that makes the valley so distinctive begins in the summer of 1957, when eight of Shockley's young PhD researchers rose up in revolt and went out on their own. Shockley's seniority, his fame, and even his Nobel Prize did nothing to deter the rebels. The traitorous eight were fed up with Shockley's heavy-handed leadership and resolved to find a different home. It was that act of defection that created the magic culture of the valley, shattering traditional assumptions about hierarchy and authority and working loyally, but decades until you retired with a gold watch. So that describes William Shockley, and he was one of the founding fathers of the transistor and the semiconductor industry. We speak about that in the Chip War episode. And this is when eight of his PhD students, Shockley was a really intense manager and kind of an asshole to his employees. He really treated them very poorly. And Arthur Ruck saw this opportunity that eight of his young PhD researchers wanted to leave and start their own business. So Arthur Ruck, who was a successful financier at the time, he realized that he could back these eight PhD students and help them break away these young, talented entrepreneurs, break away and build their own company where they could own the equity themselves instead of working for this guy, William Shockley. So they broke away and they started a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. Each of these traitorous eight early employees 
put in $500 to own equity in the new company. But part of the arrangement, since this was a semiconductor company and there were some upfront capital costs, was this wealthy family, the Fairchild family, had put in an option to buy all the shares of the company for $3 million, which would be a, a great return for the trader estate. They only put $500 to own decent pieces of the equity. But basically, the Fairchild family put this option to buy all the shares for $3 million with voting rights. And after two years, the Fairchild family exercised those controls once Fairchild Semiconductor hit $2 million in profits. And we know from the Chip War episode, about two to three years in was when the company was really starting to get a lot of the government business. The government is what initially propped up the company to go from a few hundred thousand in sales to then a few million to 21 million in the early 60s. So basically, the Fairchild family sees the business is doing so well, it has 2 million in profits. They exercise their option, their right to buy all the shares for $3 million, a 1.5 multiple, crazy at the time, obviously, and crazy today if we think about it. And the trader is eight. They got a great return on their equity. They put in $500 and they each got these amazing payoffs because of that. I think a couple hundred thousand each. But now the problem was back to square one. They didn't own the equity. And a lot of Arthur Rocks, he's really considered one of these founding fathers of the venture capital industry. What he hung his hat on was starting this VC firm where talented young entrepreneurs could break away and start their own business, and that they could own the equity themselves. He called it liberation capital. So this is from Malibu. Liberation capital was about unlocking human talent. It was about sharpening incentives. It was about forging a new kind of applied science and new commercial culture. And again, we're seeing this need to align incentives, create win-win incentives, it's something we've seen in almost every episode so far. It's something that we're starting to recognize it's part of all of these successful people's worldview, right? So Arthur Rock saw that Fairchild wasn't measuring up to his early intentions. It wasn't fitting into this liberation capital. Malby also says, Having witnessed the effect of employee share ownership on the early culture of Fairchild, he believed in awarding managers, scientists, and salesmen with stock and stock options. In sum, everybody in the Davis and Rock orbit, the limited partners, the general partners, the entrepreneurs, their key employees, was compensated in the form of equity. So Arthur Rock created the first real limited partnership, this VC-like model with equity investors, equity LPs, a seven to 10 year time frame to deliver returns. He put in some of his own capital and a core belief of his was emphasizing equity ownership. I need these founders who I'm gonna be backing, I'm gonna give them the liberation from their old stifling businesses to own the equity and they will feel that extra motivation, that incentive to go the extra mile. And he was also an early proponent for the value of intangibles and understanding the role intangibles will play in the next era of 
technology, the rise of technology. He thought that the only asset of startups and the only possible reason to invest in them was human talent, or what Rock liked to call intellectual book value. So we see today intangibles have become much more important, and we'll discuss intangibles more near the end of this episode. But this idea of intellectual book value, he was recognizing that in an age of technology, it's really the talent who matters because you're not in a tangible business that is as reliant on machines or factories or warehouses, buildings anymore. Obviously, those all play a role. But these venture-backed businesses that are technology businesses, software businesses, much of it has to do with the talent behind the business, the ones who are actually leading that innovative charge and breaking ahead on the cutting edge of technology. So to assess talent, Rock would use really this open-ended questioning framework that I think any of us in the investment business, especially in the VC business, but really many different types of industries you have to work on assessing talent. These were some of the questions and some of the traits that Arthur Rock would look for in these early days that he was defining the VC and liberation capital industry. Whom did they admire? What mistakes had they learned from? And then wait patiently for the entrepreneurs to fill the vacuum created by his silence. Self-contradiction, wishful thinking, a fondness for ingratiation at the expense of honesty, these were the clues that Rock should pass on an investment. Intelligent consistency, gritty realism, fiery determination, these were the signs that he should seize the opportunity. Do they see things the way they are, not the way they want them to be? Rock would often ask himself. Would they drop what they're doing at a minute's notice to do something which would help the business, or would they continue their dinner? When I talk to entrepreneurs, I'm evaluating not only their motivation, but also their character, fiber. So Rock, as one of these first venture capitalists, clearly understood how much of his job is assessing talent, especially in the earlier stages, because that is when the technology is very, very premature. You may have only a MVP or initial product, basically. So there weren't as much financial metrics to go off of. And Rock would use his talent judging ability to give himself this edge as an investor. As we move on from Arthur Rock, I've already mentioned he was really this founding father of the venture capital industry and what he thought of back then as liberation capital, being able to allow these talented engineers and entrepreneurs to go off on their own and pursue their own companies. And he formed these first structures to actually invest in their company, offer these win-win incentives with equity ownership and use his talent assessment techniques to find the winner founders. Arthur Rock had a legendary, legendary record as a VC investor. Some of the companies he backed, one of them, as we discussed, was Fairchild Semiconductor, which was one of those first semiconductor companies and really one of the first big institutionalized semiconductor companies. Unfortunately, some of these equity dynamics got in the way and it ended up breaking up into many smaller but even to this day, very important semiconductor companies. 
He also invested in Intel, in Apple, and in two other big companies, at least back then, SDS and Teledyne, which all five of those were five of the best investments over the first 20 years or so of the venture capital industry. And obviously, we look at Apple and Intel, and both of those to this day are some of these massive companies we still rely on in the 21st century. So Arthur Rock was this founding father of the VC industry, and he played a big role. Over time, in the 70s, we had some new people and some new firms come to play with what was called really activist capital as Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins started to see their rise to power. So this is Malibu discussing how the 1970s became this period of activist capital. The new venture capitalists actively shaped them. They told company founders whom to hire, how to sell, and how to structure their research. And to ensure that their instructions were implemented, the new venture capitalists came up with a second innovation. Rather than organizing one large fundraising, they doled out capital in trenches, with each cautious infusion calibrated to support the company until it reached an agreed milestone. So this was the start of VC firms really getting more involved with the operations of the business, providing some of that guidance and a board role and some of those rounds when you hear a seed round versus series A, series B to differentiate what are some of the milestones you want to hit before you get that next round of funding. A lot of this period was first defined with Sequoia Capital. The initial startings of Sequoia Capital was founded by Don Valentine, who was another one of these founding fathers of the VC industry. And he grew up in kind of this angry upbringing. Malby talks about his angry upbringing as a kid. He slowly works his way through the sales divisions at Fairchild Semiconductor, so the big semiconductor firm in the early 60s, late 50s and early 60s. And then he transitioned to National Semiconductor. And over that time period, he was slowly making these side investments, investing into small technology projects until he realized there is a real opportunity here, especially with somewhat complex or difficult to deal with company founders that other investors didn't want to touch. So he really got into the business fully and decided to start Sequoia Capital. After learning about the founder of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, and he recognized that this person is very hard to work with. He seems like an odd lot, someone who doesn't fit in with the suit and tie standard. But he realized those are the types of people who, with a little bit of guidance, could really grow a big business. And he decided to raise $5 million. He spent a year and a half, realized the best way to raise money is from these university endowments who wouldn't have to pay taxes as part of the partnership and these capital gains taxes. And he ends up investing in Atari as one of their first investments. And although Bushnell, the founder, was someone very difficult to work with, Valentine created this reputation of being able to handle those types of cases. And he ended up helping grow Atari into the big personal video game market 
when before they weren't really tackling the personal video game market. It turned out to be a massive investment for them. At the same time, with this rise of activist capital, there were some firms who would prioritize investing in a company and then fully replacing the CEO with a MBA grad, like a Harvard Business School grad or Stanford Business School grad. This is something that Sutter Hill Ventures did back then. And that also really shows this idea of activist capital. While Valentine was thinking of it as, let me guide them into the right strategic markets and maybe help with hiring, things of that nature, people like Bill Draper of Sutter Hill Ventures was thinking, I may just want to replace the CEO outright. So that's the real intense activism. And alternatively, Eugene Kleiner, who was part of that original Traitorous Eight that formed Fairchild Semiconductor, he was noticing this rise of the VC business and opportunity to invest in young technology companies together. So he went to his friend, Tom Perkins, who was a general manager at HP's computer division, and he pitched Tom Perkins on this idea that they should form a VC firm, which, as we know now, became Kleiner Perkins, to invest in these early businesses by young entrepreneurs, young engineers who wanted to break away and start their own revolutionary tech company. Kleiner Perkins, these early days, they started in the 70s during the oil embargo so they faced this challenge of many of their early bets, their early investments, didn't really pan out that well. And it is very much driven by this power law aspect of many companies will fail, but if you have one or two that pay off, that can certainly pay off the rest of your fund. But in these early days, Perkins and Kleiner were noticing that they should do a little bit more risk mitigation to tackle companies and help them get through some of the hardest parts of their business. So Perkins thought of something. By focusing exclusively on the white-hot risks in a project, you could find out whether the venture was likely to work while risking as little capital as possible. If you notice or if you listen to the Quit episode, this is very similar to Google's Project X division, the Moonshots division, that uses that monkey in a pedestal framework, that mental model. It's where you really want to focus on these white hot risks or the hardest tasks of a problem first. And you have to understand, if I can't solve the hardest thing first, there's nothing to this business. So what they would do to de-risk their investments, especially after having a few losing investments during those oil embargoes, is they would look at these companies and see if those white hot risks, the most risky parts of the business, were something that strategically they could solve or through their network and connecting them with the right people, they could solve. And if they couldn't solve it, then you might as well quit. You might as well walk away from that investment opportunity. Another astute point that Tom Perkins thought of was this idea of Perkins' law. So he said, market risk is inversely proportional to technical risk. Because if you solve a truly difficult technical problem, you will face minimal competition. Thanks to the high barrier to entry, Tandem's profit margin remained juicy even as its sales soared. So this idea of Perkins' law, market risk is inversely proportional to technical risk. 
It means if you're able to build into this much more so technical product and you have such a lead in the technological edge that your competitors just simply can't catch up or don't want to compete with you, you have that high barrier to entry, you're able to price your products really well while having this natural monopoly. I think it most reminds me of ASML, the Dutch lithography company that we discussed in the Chip War episode, because that's a company that has this insane technical risk. It's something that took over two decades, almost 25 years to develop the EUV technology. And it has probably, I believe it was over 450,000 individual parts, this crazy amount of technical risk. And now ASML has this full-blown monopoly in EUV systems, and they have strong profit margins and pretty much no competition in that space. So this is another rule, Perkins Law, that we should remind ourselves of when we find these really risky businesses. If they have this massive technological edge, and it's to the point that no one even wants to compete with them, that is something that could help them sustain very high margins. So we're now in the mid-1970s, and we're at the time that Apple and one of our favorite entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs, is getting started. So Steve Jobs was having a lot of trouble raising money from investors and gaining their confidence because of his kind of hippie personality and view. And we spoke about how Don Valentine had this strength to look past these things, but even in the beginning, Valentine wasn't willing to look past it. Most firms were scared away because Steve Jobs was so counter to some of the founders they had seen before. And it was at the time that people believed very, very strongly in the personal computer, and there was this sense of really little competition, actually, because of most of the main dominant firm's innovator's dilemma. So I want to read this really great passage by Malaby describing how, as Apple was getting started, there was this natural innovator's dilemma that limited the competition Apple would have, and yet they still didn't really get a lot of interest early on from investors. So Malaby says, On the face of it, Apple was an obvious candidate for venture investment because scores of insiders already understood that the personal computer would be the next big thing in technology. Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, had recognized the PC as an idea whose time has arrived and had produced a prototype complete with mouse and graphical interface. Intel and National Semiconductor had considered making a PC, and Steve Wozniak had twice offered the Apple One design to his employer, Hewlett Packard. But all four companies had decided not to build a per se, inhibited by what the business thinker Clayton Christensen termed the innovator's dilemma. Xerox worried that a computerized paperless office would harm its core photocopying business. Intel and National Semiconductor feared that making a computer would put them in conflict with existing computer makers, which were among their top customers. HP fretted that building a cheap home computer would undercut its premium machines, which sold for around $150,000. All four companies had too much of a stake in the status quo to risk disrupting it. 
So that is this idea of innovator's dilemma. It's this fundamental concept by Clayton Christensen, who is one of these great business thinkers. And it's discussing how all four of these companies understood and knew that the PC revolution was the next big tech wave, but something about their core business would erode if they decided to pursue this PC business. So they recognized that it's not in their best interest for them to compete because they were too worried of eroding and bringing one of their core businesses like Xerox's photocopying business or HP's premium machine computer business down from the $150,000 price point. This is what created this real lack of competition for Apple. But like we mentioned, it was having a lot of trouble raising money. Steve Jobs had this weird hippie reputation and Apple ended up having this individual join the company, Mike Marcula, who he really started the ball rolling. He started to help VCs and that network of VCs become a lot more enthusiastic about Apple because he convinced them about this PC revolution. And he showed them really that him as more of a straight-laced executive within the company could help Steve Jobs do the job that they're looking for as venture capitalists in this activist age. And this was the beginning as everyone saw Apple as this obvious candidate for investment because of their lack of competition. It was the beginning of this spiral in VC where the best companies earn a reputation of being the best companies by having the best VC firms invest in them. And that causes this spiral of FOMO and envy and jealousy that causes the next firm to want to back these top firms. So Malaby says, in the case of Apple, VCs were being told that they should invest simply because others were investing. However circular this logic, it was by no means crazy. The whispering grapevine was sending a message. Apple would be a winner. In the face of that social proof, the objective truth about the skills of Apple's managers or the quality of its products might be secondary. If Apple was attracting funding and if its reputation was soaring thanks to well-connected backers, its chances of hiring the best people and securing the best distribution channels were improving too. Circular logic could be sound logic. So again, this exhibits those qualities of power laws and how really strength leads to strength. The best companies benefit from this reputation of the best VC firms decided to invest in them originally. So that means on the following round, the next VC firm wants to invest in this company and now has this reputation for being quote unquote a winner. And then they actually get to have better hiring opportunities. The talent sees that and they want to go to the company. The distribution channels and suppliers see that and they want to work with the company that's going to be around for a long time. And you end up seeing these real massive power law winners. It's like a snowball starts rolling and they start accumulating all these advantages. That is also what becomes very dangerous later on when people start to invest just based on their reputation without actually doing the diligence, as you can imagine. So this concept of Apple and the PC revolution formed a real founding idea for Don Valentine and Sequoia's team. He called it the aircraft carrier model 
which was where you basically back all these supporting businesses around a new platform revolution or platform shift. So for Apple back then, Sequoia ended up backing Apple. Sequoia and Arthur Rock and Venrock decided to back Apple after Mike Marcula convinced them and showed that Steve Jobs can engineer this turnaround. The lack of competition was attractive and you could develop this reputation as a winner into Apple. That all happened. And then Valentine realized this rise of personal computing is a real platform shift. So we should support the companies that are ancillary to that platform chip. Sequoia went out and started investing in the memory chip providers because there has to be a memory chip in every new personal computer or the software programs that would go on your home computers or the disk drives that would allow you to store certain items. So this was how Sequoia really was able to build up a big reputation. Obviously, they bet on Atari and Apple, which were huge successes, but they were able to follow those on with this aircraft carrier model, backing the companies that are supporting businesses to the platform shift. And we've seen the same trend play out in recent days with things like the mobile wave and ironically, Apple again. As people were seeing, and Valentine gave this great talk to, I believe it was Stanford Business School a few years ago, five or six years ago, and he discusses how this exact shift happened again when Apple released the new mobile wave with their new iPhone in 2007, 2008. Sequoia immediately recognized that and started looking for these mobile applications that are supporting and being enabled by this mobile computing platform, this new platform shift. And they would go out and seek companies like a DoorDash or like an Uber that they know would greatly benefit from being that company riding the coattails of Apple. As we move on through the late 70s and early 80s, another big revolution was going on alongside the PC revolution, which was this rise of Ethernet cables allowing these home PCs to actually be connected and strengthen what was the network's value. So these Ethernet cables were originally invented by Bob Metcalf at Xerox Park or Palo Alto Research Center. And like I said, it kind of let the computers have this natural connection and it formed what people think of today as Metcalf's Law. The utility of a personal computer would rise exponentially when it was hooked up to a network, they both agreed. Indeed, this insight came to be known as Metcalf's Law. The value of the network rises with the square of the number of devices connected to it. Metcalf's Law is this idea of network effects, and it's something we see in business often today. We've seen it now with oftentimes social networks. As more of your friends join a new social platform, you're much more incentivized to join and you benefit much more as more of your friends are on that platform. But in the very initial days, this was really useful for personal computers. Once you got a personal computer to be able to actually communicate with people using your computer. And in the same sense with telecoms, with phone networks, you think about a phone network, your phone is only valuable for communication if the other people you care about talking to 
have phones as well. So this was a really important bridging innovation for the personal computer rise, this personal computer revolution. And people named this idea Metcalfe's Law to recognize the inherent network effects created by these Ethernet cables. Allowing these home personal computers to now communicate meant that the PCs ended up becoming much, much more valuable for the actual consumers because now it wasn't just a productivity workstation. It was actually something that you could connect with the people who are important to you. So with the invention of these Ethernet cables and the ensuing network effects that they bring, the PC revolution was well on its way in the 80s. And we're going to continue to move on. We know the 80s had a lot of continued success from some of the historic firms and from Apple and Microsoft as this PC revolution was going on. And we're going to start to transition to the 90s as we get to these early innings right before some of the modern day companies that we know of. And we're going to start seeing some of the companies we know of today that are a shade of what they were in the late 90s. To start off, I should introduce you to John Doerr, who was really the dominant venture capitalist of this period, of the 90s. He became the go-to investor for fearless founders who loved him for championing their visions even more passionately than they did. So as Malibu is saying, he pretty much set the pace for the VC industry at this time. He was part of Kleiner Perkins, and both Perkins and Kleiner had retired from the firm. He was a young investor at the firm who had worked his way up and now really taken on this responsibility as one of the managing partners at the firm. And he set the pace of the VC industry by being the guy that everyone wanted on their cap table. He was known to just out-hustle people for deals and was extremely competitive at finding the deals and then appealing to the founder, showing them that he has an even bigger idea of what the company can become than what the founder has even imagined. Some of the big investments that John Doerr was famous for is he invested in Amazon and Google, two massive companies we know of today, Netscape, which was the first web browser, Lotus, which was the spreadsheet software that Microsoft actually copied to create Microsoft Excel, and two other big companies, Compaq and Sun Microsystems. I wanna briefly touch on one of those investments that some of us may not know as well. Certainly people who have been in the VC or tech industry for a long time do know very well, but Netscape was started by Mark Andreessen. It was really this first web browser, and originally Mark Andreessen started the very first web browser, Mosaic, at the University of Illinois, but he was trying to get these patent rights to commercialize the product, and he wasn't really given the ability by the university to commercialize Mosaic. So he decided to leave, and he started a competitor with Jim Clark, which was what became Netscape. And this concept of the first web browser was really what started a lot of the 
internet age, allowing people to go and surf the web on the internet was enabled because of Netscape and this commercial web browser. They dominated the web browser market for the first few years, and it really helped John Doerr's reputation being one of the early big investors in Netscape because they were much of that early defining era of the internet and technology age. And as we know now, Mark Andreessen, he's one of the famous founders of Andreessen Horowitz, a big VC firm today, but this was one of the early pioneering technologies of those PC, Ethernet, internet waves. And John Doerr was right there behind it. He got an early look at some of these technologies that most other venture capitalists didn't really get the opportunity to lead or they weren't actively seeking out John Doerr. Most of the founders would literally seek out John Doerr because he had such a reputation. And a lot of that was because he was able to invest in these very early successful platform or technology era defining companies like Netscape with the web browser. At the same time, in the 90s, we were starting to see somewhat more competition. Around that time is when Excel was started, which is another VC firm. It was started by Jim Swartz, and he was looked at as the first specialized investor. They decided to specialize in telecoms and networking equipment, and they felt that it would give them this advantage because they would better understand the business and the business model when meeting with different founders. So we're seeing Excel is starting this idea of a specialized VC firm. To this point, it had been mainly general VC firms that maybe certain partners would try to specialize more so, but Excel felt like we may want to specialize in certain sectors. And today we see many different types of firms that have specialty areas. Like today we may see firms that specialize in logistics or specialize in fintech or social networks and social media. Around this time in the mid-1990s, people became exposed to one of these very big tech darlings of the 90s tech boom and euphoria. So I'm referring to Yahoo, which people saw really as the search engine of the internet back then, or this front page of the internet. Bill Draper, who was the founder of Sutter Hill Ventures, we'd mentioned, he thought of Yahoo as the idea that you could look up almost anything online felt like digital magic. And Michael Moritz, who was at this point one of the leading investors at Sequoia, he understood the potential that Yahoo had as this search engine and the business potential they had in the advertising space because Morris actually had a lot of his past experience in magazines. So he understood a lot of this value that there would be this inherent advertising business model to any search engine and it would be fairly lucrative and allow whoever is the winner to reap great profits. So he was very aggressive and he ended up winning the deal over Tim Draper, who was actually Bill Draper's son. So even though Bill Draper recognized this power, this digital magic of Yahoo with its search engine capabilities, his son was a little slow to the gun 
And Michael Morris beat him to it because he understood the opportunity that Yahoo had in the advertising search business. Now, Malaby discusses how Yahoo was really the early days, the beginning of that cycle of over-optimism and euphoria that led to the tech bubble of the early 2000s. It's when people started caring more and more about the hype and social proof, like that reputation aspect we spoke about with Apple, than the actual financials or the metrics of the company. So Malaby says, Sequoia's investment in Yahoo set the stage for the second half of the 1990s, the period of the exuberant internet build-out that culminated in the bursting of the tech bubble. The innovation of backing companies that charges little or nothing for products spread through the venture capital business like wildfire. Startups came to be assessed not according to this year's revenues or even next year's, but rather according to their momentum, traction, audience, or brand. Things that could, in theory at least, be monetized in the future. So again, we're seeing these are the early innings of over-optimism, euphoria, this FOMO feeling where investors stop even doing the basic diligence to understand if it was the right investment in the first place. But they start investing based on the hype, based on the aspect that a big investor funded the last round, which means it probably is a good company and it's now established that reputation. So it should have bigger funding amounts this round. And people started caring a lot for companies that grew in this sense of momentum or audience, brand, users. We see today often some companies can rise because they have a lot of users despite not having a lot of revenue production. And they stopped caring about those true financials. And that could become an issue when the core business starts to deteriorate. That's when it could really become dangerous. Malaby discusses a little bit later the real risk of Yahoo, the technological risk. He said, Yahoo boasted no patents and not much of an engineering edge. Its directory was put together by surfing the web and classifying sites, and much of the work was done manually. As a result, it presented a negative illustration of Tom Perkins' dictum. Because Yahoo entailed no technological risk, it involved a huge amount of market risk because no technological moat protected it from competitors. So we're seeing how Yahoo didn't actually own the technological advantage behind search. They used this manual method to piece together their search results, which created this real issue because it meant competition could come in. As Tom Perkins talked about, you have no technological edge. That means competition could come in and offer a much better product, especially in a market like search, where there's this winner-take-all dynamic. There's much more of a power law, this winner-take-all, because all consumers want to use the search option that delivers the best results. And all the advertising dollars will typically go to the search engine that delivers the best results. And obviously, as we know now, looking back in hindsight, that turned out to be Google. We're going to get to some of Google's story later. But this is what really allowed Google to eventually come in and take over the search market with such a better technological advantage. 
It was why they were able to come in, even though Yahoo had all these big backers, VC institutions who were hyping up the company and years of strong profits and what people thought of as a moat, but fell off so quickly because once people realized their search results weren't actually superior, people flocked to the best option. Luckily for Yahoo, there were still a few years until Google would come in and try to eat their lunch in the search business. And there was one investor who really started a new big investing trend who benefited massively from Yahoo. And that investor is Masa San, who is the head of SoftBank, and he really started the growth investing trend. This was around the time in the mid to late 90s, about 1995 was when Yahoo was first gaining its edge and Sequoia invested. So this was a few years after that, as Yahoo already had its market advantage and many consumers were using it regularly and they were preparing to go public and Masa came in and offered to invest this massive $100 million bet on Yahoo. And back then, these were with much smaller funds. Oftentimes, the whole VC fund may have been $150 or $200 million. So Masa coming in and betting $100 million on one company was unheard of at the time. And he really created this niche of growth investing, and he was rewarded handsomely for it. He ended up making over $150 million after Yahoo's IPO as they expanded globally and created this subsidiary in Japan that SoftBank was able to gain a pretty big equity stake in as well. He saw this strategy as, to him, a winning strategy in starting this growth investing trend. And it got to the point that he started just kind of spraying and firing everywhere. One young investor who managed Son's funds recalls betting on at least 250 internet startups between 1996 and 2000, meaning that he had kept up an insane rate of around one per week, 10 or maybe even 20 times as many as a normal venture operator. So we're seeing how Masa had this great success with Yahoo. It's one of his best investments early on as he's starting this growth trend, but he decides to follow it on by kind of just spraying everywhere, betting on 250 internet startups and backing anything that he could lay his hands on. And he was able to do that because SoftBank as a company would invest off their balance sheet. They weren't doing really raised funds like today their vision fund, but he ended up really getting punished during the tech crash. As a lot of those companies fell in value, luckily his Yahoo stake still ended up being a, a big equity portion, but many, many of those 250 companies ended up going to zero because there wasn't a real investment case behind them. If he's doing one deal a week, it's impossible to do deep diligence on each of those deals. And these growth size bets are even bigger checks. They're even tougher terms. This is an interesting point in time. Masa is obviously starting this growth trend, which we'll see develop much more in the next decade, in about 10 years from now, the late 2000s. But 
Masa was the first one to really hop on board of this strategy, define the growth investing strategy, and ultimately suffer a little bit from his spray from the hip strategy right before the tech bust. We'll now close off part one and really the pre-modern day venture landscape that we know of, the pre-2000s, pre-tech bust, with the founding of Benchmark. So Benchmark was founded in this mid-1990s period as some more competition was coming to play. John Doerr was dominating the VC industry. Excel was popping up with their specialized approach and Masa with SoftBank's balance sheet was coming in, defining the growth investing strategy. So at the same time, Benchmark was being founded by Bruce Dunleavy and Bob Cagle as a firm that really wanted to intentionally stay small and prioritize selecting the best companies and offering the best strategic guidance. They made it important and part of their mission to not necessarily grow just because some of these other investors like Masa with the growth funds were deciding to grow their funds and grow the checks that they're writing for their companies. So Benchmark is this firm that was started and now it's really this historic firm. It's an incredible venture capital firm. I recommend listening to the Acquired podcast they just did with Benchmark. But they turned into this firm of absolute quality. They said, we're not going to diverge from our core principles of backing the best companies, keeping our funds smaller in the 150 to $200 million range and offering the best type of strategic guidance. And we will really look to exemplify this quality barrier. Now they did that and they really got their first big hit with eBay, which was another one of these darlings of the 1990s era. And as we know today is still a great consumer product. So eBay was getting started back then in in the mid-1990s, and they were really revolutionizing this idea of the network effect. Like we spoke about, the network effect is how when a new user joins the platform, all the other users see more value out of the platform. And eBay benefits from this because they have this natural marketplace where as additional users join the platform and are looking to buy products, the other sellers on the network are benefited because there's more people as an audience who may buy your product. eBay started growing really quickly around this time. They were scaling without much marketing spend. They benefited from a lot of word of mouth. They instituted user reviews at the time, which was really rare. People were worried about if they create user reviews that it will knock down certain products. But luckily, it actually helped marketplaces that created this because it created this layer of consumer trust. And eBay quickly was rising as Benchmark made a big early bet on the company. They invested $6.7 million in the company and gained a significant stake in eBay as it was starting to see this growth curve. After they made this investment in eBay and a little bit into the firm's founding as they were starting to gel the four founding partners, they brought in this individual, David Byrne, to join the Benchmark team. 
And he was actually leading his own executive recruiting firm, like a talent search firm. And he joined Benchmark just in time to really recruit Meg Whitman to lead eBay as the chief executive. eBay at the time was this company that was selling kind of trinkets and knickknacks. It wasn't really real consumer products. Most people weren't sure, even though it was scaling tremendously, people weren't sure if it would become the big marketplace that it ended up turning into. And Meg Whitman as well, who had a stable job at the time, she was skeptical that this random marketplace would make it out. But David Byrne was able to really convince her and recruit her once she noticed, as Malby says, eBay did not hold inventory. It had no carrying costs, no shipping costs, no hassles with storage. As a result, its profit margins were formidable. So eBay is this type of marketplace that it doesn't need warehouses to hold the goods because individuals, the consumers, will ship it to themselves. It doesn't have to deal with storage or losing inventory, with paying for the shipping even. It's just this marketplace that takes a fee on each transaction and the costs to run that are not very high. So it has these very strong profit margins. Once Meg Whitman realized this, she agreed to join as CEO. And that's really when eBay started to soar and it started to grow into many of the other personal markets. And it got out of just the initial small goods and trinkets types of sales but it grew into the whole personal selling market for the general consumer. And it turned out to be one of Benchmark's biggest investments, a massive investment. I mentioned how they invested $6.7 million. It turned into a $5.1 billion gain as the company eBay went public. The stock shot up and they ended up getting a 761x multiple as their return. eBay is what really initially put Benchmark on the map. Benchmark to this day continues to be this stamp of excellence and quality as a VC firm. They've still continued to keep their funds small, unlike many of the other VC firms of this era that have increased the fund sizes tremendously because of some of the growth and different types of capital pressures. But Benchmark has this reputation now as a firm that will back the best, and they really have done so. They've backed some of the best companies in the world and created this real desire for founders to seek them out as their VC backers. So that really concludes the pre-modern day that we're discussing, that pre-2000s timeline. Part two is going to discuss really the post-2000s, a little bit of the tech bubble, but many of the modern-day companies that we know now, like some of the Google and Facebook origin stories, the role that Y Combinator and Peter Thiel played, Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia's continued dominance, and some of the big, big takeaways of the current venture capital landscape and this idea of power laws really showing up in all aspects of the venture investing business. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm excited to continue on the journey and thanks again for listening.